Hi, everyone. This is Charlie with this is the podcast to hell and back. Um, and uh, this is a third podcast in a series of podcasts. The first two, I was with Andrea Gold, who you can see on the screen if you're on YouTube, and you'll hear shortly if you're just on, on listening to a podcast. And the other person here is going to be um, Amy Egolf, and Amy is Andrea's best friend. And, um, and I spent two podcasts learning from Andrea about her experiences of having breast cancer being diagnosed and the early parts of the treatment and what she's been through and how she's coped with all of that and how she's used her DBT skills to cope with that. And um, she said some things about her family and she's mentioned Amy a few times. So we thought we'd do this really cool thing now, which is to have Amy join and talk about kind of uh, friendship, close friendship, and how cancer has um, entered into their friendship and how they've coped with that, how each of them has coped with that and what impact it's made on them. And and so I don't want to say too much more about that. That's m much more interesting to hear what they have to say. Um, but that's what this is all about, to look up friendship uh, uh, and, and a close friendship in relation to cancer. Um, and uh, there will be one more podcast in this series um, when Andrea is finished with her treatments, because she's still involved in treatments, as you're going to hear. Um, then we'll have another one where just she and I'll talk and she'll tell us what else she went through and where things stand at the end of her treatments. Um, so that's it. So welcome, Andrea. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Charlie. And I thought we'd um, first get just get uh, a little update from Andrea about since we last had uh, a podcast in July, kind of where things have gone and where things stand at this point with her cancer and with her treatments for her cancer. And then we're going to jump into the friendship aspect of this. Okay, Andrea. That seems like so long ago that we last spoke on I here. Know, and also does. just like yesterday, a total dialectic there. That last conversation had been after my double mastectomy. And before I started the third big leg of my cancer treatment, which is daily radiation. So since we spoke, I um, looked for a radiation oncologist. That was a good fit for me. I had to date around a little three tries and then the third one was awesome and worth it, um, worth the wait. And um, radiation has been a lot easier than chemo in terms of it's not painful. I don't really feel anything. The side effects haven't set in. And it's still really hard because even if something could be harder, it's still hard. And so um, I think in a way, some things emotionally about cancer have been a li little bit harder with my radiation experience. And I still have been able to enjoy summer. Um, summers in Rhode Island are pretty magical. And so I've been having fun with my family, with, with Amy and her family and, and our friends. I um, have been adjusting to being flat. Um, I talked last time about my choice to not pursued, proceed with uh, reconstruction and how that was a really challenging choice that ate me up for months. And, you know, when I teach people about making decisions based on wise mind, I'll always say, you know, sit with it and see if it's emotion mind, it will change based on your mood and your emotions. And if it's a wise mind, it will stay true over the time. So I'm happy to share with you, Charlie, and on here that it's been the wise, it's the wise mind choice for me. I haven't had regrets. Um, 
I think I've, I face the emotions that come with it and have also been um, I feeling like it's it's a potentially a, a way to um, learn more about a topic and do something that I'm proud of. So um, that's that's been a change. My scars have been healing and I've now done um, just today, I think, is representative of what what my schedule has been like, what my life's been like. I'm still on medical leave. Um, but I did my eighth radiation treatment this morning. So Amy picked me up. We took my daughter, Charlie, to daycare together and um, had my eighth, eighth radiation. I have 25 total. And then Amy and I went, we, we got fancy coffees twice today, uh, strawberry matcha and a iced <laughs> vanilla oat lat milk latte. Um, and then I had my 10th out of 17 um, injections for my anti-HER2 treatment. So this is a targeted therapy for my cancer um, because it's very aggressive. I have, I have the four treatments, chemo and surgery, both are completed. The radiation, that's in, I'm in the middle of it. And then my anti-HER2 treatment, the targeted therapy is for a full year. So I had um, my 10th one today. I made a mistake, actually thought it was the 11th. And um, Amy and I take a picture each time. So Amy's been my companion to go to these treatments. And um, initially that was a, a real um, wise mind choice for me of what's effective. My, my husband, Chris, is an ER doctor and in many ways coming to do medical things with me is challenging because he knows all the ways that it can go wrong and it's, it's different yeah. when, it's, when it's your family member. Yeah. And so um, it was emotional and hard for him to be there for my C-sections and be in the OR um, to be there for my lymph node biopsy and see, I, he felt a little queasy seeing the radiologist you know, on the ultrasound, you can see the needle going in and out of my body. Mm -hmm. And um, I had asked him for my first chemo, like, are you confident that, that this is going to be okay for you? And he was like, I, I think so, which for me was, yeah, this, this isn't a sure thing. And so Amy's been the one to come with me for everyone. And I think that's been really effective um, thinking about cancer affecting not just me, but, but my family and more broadly, that Chris is doing a lot, taking care of our kids more since I've been in treatment and and feeling, you know, the effects of it emotionally for him while he's still working. And so being able to not be with me and see me in pain in that way, I think has been really an important way of Chris and taking care of him, where I think he feels like he should be there for me. He wants to take care of for me, but actually the best way to do that sometimes is to take care of yourself. So mm -hmm. this is an example of how I've really been quite quite, um, you know, grateful for having a village of lots of people to help my family in general and Amy in particular. So she came with me and um, we take pictures each time. This time I, I wanted to show 11 with fingers, we'll count with fingers. And so I had Amy hold up two hands of 10 and then I put a middle finger up right in the middle for 11. And the, the bad news is I made a mistake and it's actually 10. I jumped ahead a little, but the good news is we'll get to do the middle finger twice. We'll do that in, in three weeks. Oh, that's very good news. Hey, Andrea, could you, you said something in the middle of that and maybe I missed it or misunderstood. Maybe you already explained this, but you were saying that even though the radiation itself isn't as difficult a treatment to go through, you said that it did something very emotional about 
your experience of the cancer or the treatment of cancer while you're going through radiation in a way that was different than before? Did I understand that right? Yeah, I think I think that it comes through at multiple levels. One is, in a way, um, when with chemo, you're having really acute, intense, extreme side effects that can grab a hold of your attention and it kind of distract you from other things. And I think there's a way with radiation, I'm not physically suffering as much. And I think there's more time and space to feel the sadness that comes with it and some of the fear. So that's, that's one level, both in my day to day, but also during radiation, I'm on a table naked from the waist up with my, my changed body, missing body parts with my new scar feeling vulnerable. And for, for 15 minutes or so, um, just seeing this treatment happening to me that is, you know, radiation that, that could be causing harm that I'm doing um, to protect myself from cancer. Um, and I've really used these like 15 minute um, doses, these periods to let myself feel sad and sad for the worries that I have to, um, not really accepting the fear or worries because the things that I worry about happening haven't happened. So radiation, you know, people say like the number one cause of cancer is cancer because cancer treatments can cause secondary cancers. Mm. Um, there's also problems that radiation can cause to your heart and lungs. And Mm. so what's, what's interesting is, you know, um, I was emailing with someone on the DBT listserv and, and she would, I mentioned radiation and she, in a very kind way said, you know, something about like, you know, breathe through it or something about breathing during radiation. Cause we, we, when we're practicing mindfulness, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on our breathing to protect my heart. Um, the procedure that radi- radiology uses is, I'm sorry, radiation therapy uses is to hold your breath because that actually moves your heart out of the path of radiation in your chest. And Mm. so I'm actually Mm. physiologically holding my breath, which, which it's hard to not feel anxious when you're holding your breath. So it's an interesting experience there. Um, So, you know, I think that's been a part of it. And then I'm actually seeing above me as a screen with a reflection where I see this splotchy blue light that I guess is part of the setup. And all I see is my chest. So I don't see my face or the rest of my body, but I see my chest with my scar. And that is a literally in your face exposure you uh. know, to what I've been through. And I wrote about in my journal and I shared with people how since I last I spoke with you, you know, taking off my bandages and looking at my scar has been a process where I've wanted to go slowly, given my, myself space to feel it and get used to this and also just feel the sadness of, of the loss. And here I am not getting to choose what, what I look at it when it's, it's right in front of me. And so that's been something that was emotional at first. Yes. Having the radiation therapist make comments on my scars too. I had um, the first day, so the first time getting radiation, um, you know, I'm, I'm naked. I think people feel vulnerable being naked period, but now showing my scars. And, and this woman was so well-meaning. She said, um, you know, oh, wow, like, look at your scar. It looks great. Cosmetically, you should be really happy with the results. We should know because we see this a lot. And she meant well, and it felt good. And at the same time, there was the judgment. There's the comparison to other people and, and communicating to me that it looks a lot better than everyone else. And we see it and it doesn't always look good, which reminds me about um, 
how how she and others may be judging people negatively. So even though it's a positive judgment, I think that can be be tricky because judgments are fragile and anything judged good can be judged bad. So so there's I can go on and on about this. I, yeah. I want to make sure we have time for me and Amy. Yeah. But there's a, a lot of places where cancer and treatment bring up my emotional vulnerability and I'm faced with sources of invalidation that I'm not expecting that I think are, are also just true living life, but it's, it's a lot more of these. And so um, I'm, I'm learning how, how to cope, how to be skillful. Um, You're incredibly skillful. I must say that this is the third or fourth time in our podcast that you've brought up something I didn't even think about, that once you're having treatment for cancer, and in your case, it's in particular breast cancer, but so you could either say the narrower or wider group of people, that you're in cancer treatment, that the awareness, yet there's a whole community of people getting treatment for cancer. And you've had several things where you've brought up and said, you know, sounding a bell or not. I mean, you could be, and the comparisons or not. It's sort of like you're aware that you're part of a class of people that are going through this and you can compare yourself or other people can compare you. And that's an additional complication of going through cancer treatment. You could think, well, I'm part of a community, but it's, but what you've highlighted actually is more, I mean, you've, you are part of a community with friends and family, but you've really highlighted that it actually is kind of complicated and potentially invalidating to be part of a cancer treatment community. You know? I think it's when, I think there's so many strengths to, to connection and community. I think comparisons are really challenging. And I think that's why comparisons are judgments and we lo- when we lose information from them yeah. and we get stuck on comparisons, mm. it can hurt. It can, it can get us stuck. So I think there's lots of examples like that. I am also fucking terrified of being done with treatment. So as much as treatment mm. sucks and I don't want to drive 40 minutes each way to re- radiation, there's some protection I feel that, okay, we're making sure this is out of my body. It's not coming back. And then what? Um, I think initially leading up to radiation, I didn't want it to start because I didn't want it to end, even though I desperately wanted it to end and I want to be done with it, um, which was just something I couldn't have anticipated. And so... Mm-hmm. Right. It's right. It, there. There is definitely pain and sadness. Um, mm. Mm. And I know people. A lot of people have told me who either have gone through cancer or are going through cancer, um, or have loved ones, close loved ones. Is the hardest part. The scariest part is when you stop treatment. And yeah. so I'm. I'm not there yet. And I got a flavor of it because I got the clean. Um, pathology report that the cancer is gone. Right. And then I was waiting for treatment. So it's a little bit of a tease and I know it's going to come up again. So there, there are a lot of different um, facets to all of this. It's very complicated, very complicated and, and not something you would think about in advance that it could make you even more anxious to have treatment done successfully. <laughs> it's like, what, what more could you want except that you now are exposed to not being in treatment. So I, I get I get it. Now look, I want to introduce Amy. Amy Golf is, uh, as I understand it, she's a psychiatrist and she works with Andrea, who's a psychologist. But I want uh, Amy, could, welcome. Thank you for joining. Thanks, and, I'm happy to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast, 
So getting to join <laughs> it is a real honor. Oh, all right. Great. And so could you tell us about yourself? I mean, mm -hmm. what, what do you do and, and how, and then move on into like who Andrea has been with you, what kind of friendship it's been and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I'm a child psychiatrist. I work here at Bradley Hospital, mostly in a program, an intensive partial hospital program for kids and teens with OCD, uh, other anxiety disorders, and also emotion dysregulation. So we use a combination of exposure therapy. That's really our main treatment modality. And then we've been working, Andrea's been working really hard to add in DBT to our repertoire too for treating our teens with a combination of OCD and emotion dysregulation. So in addition to working here in that program, I also do a lot with medical education and moved from New York to be in Rhode Island and now Massachusetts and love living here. This is a great place to live. I could try and sell it to anyone who wants to move here. And I you better watch it. Watch it, Amy. I used to <laughs> I grew up in Oregon. And if you started to try to sell Oregon to people because it's such a great place to live, then pe the rest of the people in Oregon get pissed off because <laughs> then Californians started to move in. So <laughs> be careful how well you advertise this secret. That's true. We might want to keep it more of a secret. Right. <laughs> um, but I moved here um, to do my child psychiatry training at Brown. And when I was finishing up my training, I met Andrea um, as part of a rotation I was doing in a DBT group. And then I started working here at the OCD program. Andrea came and joined the group where I was working and we quickly became best friends. So I think it's been about three and a half years. Yeah, Andrea's nodding. So about three and a half years. And yeah, four, three and a half, four. Okay. We could be inexact. And we work together um, as part of this program doing co-therapy with teens and families. So we're really a team here at work. And then we're best friends outside of work. So we spend a lot of time together when Andrea is not on leave. Um, more time, I spend more time with Andrea than with my husband and my daughter because we're like together at work all day and then often with each other outside of work and with our families too. So in the course of us becoming best friends, our families have become very close as well. So my daughter, who's seven, her name's Aurora. She's good friends with Olive and Charlie. Um, our husbands are friends with each other. So it's been sort of a whole package that's developed over the last four years. Oh, well, how fortunate. That's really nice. And so you, so you, you you have daily work together. You literally go into the same place to work, and yes. uh, you're working with some of the same clients. Sounds like yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, and and you were already. I mean, before before cancer entered the scene, you guys were very well established friendship. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so you know. It's uh, some people that listen to the podcast might know. I just. I, I really relate personally to this and um, because uh, I'm a psychiatrist and my best friend uh, had breast cancer and she was a psychologist and we worked together. I was her boss. I don't know if that's the case in this case, but, uh, but we worked collaboratively very close to each other and then knew each other outside. So that, that was a kind of an amazing parallel actually. 
I don't take it for granted. There's some greater wisdom here that put us all together. You know? <laughs> so tell so tell us what happened um, once you, how did you learn that Andrea had cancer? Mm -hmm. So I found out that Andrea had cancer very shortly after she found out, not immediately. So I knew that Andrea was having a number of tests done to assess what was going on for her physically in her body. And I was away with my husband and my daughter in New York City for a weekend. We were celebrating my daughter's seventh birthday. So we took her to see a play. She's a huge Harry Potter fan. So we took her to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And my husband and I and daughter lived in New York City. I'm from New York. So we were also visiting friends there that weekend. And Andrea knew that we were away for the trip. And she reached out to me about midway through. It was a long weekend, reached out to me on the Saturday and said, hey, do you have some time to talk today? So I, it was like intermission for the play. I said, you know, I, I can reach out when we're done here. So we finished at the play. We were on our way to see friends we hadn't seen in a while. And I gave Andrea a call and I said, you know, I've got a few minutes. We're walking to our friend's apartment right now. And Andrea said, you know what, actually, it's okay. Why don't we talk tomorrow? So I didn't think too much of it, although in the back of my mind, I was probably like, oh, this doesn't sound like a great thing. Um, and I was doing a lot with my family and friends. So, you know, really was pretty distracted, didn't have it on my mind. And then, so the next day we were driving home. Um, we stopped on the way to go to Trader Joe's. And Andrea had said, you know, let me know when you're free. So I texted her. I said, you know, we're in Trader Joe's. It was a Sunday evening. Um, she gave me a call. And while I was doing some grocery shopping in Trader Joe's, she let me know that she found out she has cancer. Mm. And it was really, really surprising news to get. Totally unexpected. Mm -hmm really emotional and I'm feeling some emotion now talking yeah, about it. Yeah, I can feel it. Yeah. And I think, you know, right when I heard, I was in the middle of a grocery store, I did not have the same emotional response that I'm having now. Um, I was very much in rational mind. Like I heard the news, I took it in, I got it, I understood, and then just like didn't have the emotional response at all then. So heard a little bit from Andrea about everything, got off the phone, finished up at Trader Joe's, and then we were driving back home and things that just finding out, you know, didn't want to talk about it with my husband in front of our seven-year-old. Mm. So it was the evening. I was waiting for her to fall asleep in the car. So that whole time, like all of this news is going through my head. I'm just processing it on my own as I'm driving. And then when she was asleep, I kept saying to Kevin, like, is she asleep? Like, do you really think she's asleep yet? And then when she was finally asleep, I let him know about Andrea having cancer, um, was crying a little bit in the car, but still like I was driving, she was asleep. I didn't want to wake her up. So I let him know, and then we got home, got her to bed, and then I had a big emotional response um, when I was home, sort of like needing to wait until that time for that to happen. You had to show unbelievable restraint. 
during that time. You're at Trader Joe's of all places. <laughs> and I'm just trying to picture Trader Joe's. And then your family's out right there and your daughter is right there and it's her birthday. It's, mm -hmm. um, you really, um, and, and it sounds like uh, Andrea ex exercised a fair amount of restraint when she first heard that you, where you were, she said, oh, let's talk later. It's like, mm -hmm. doesn't sound like we have enough time to process this. Um, yeah, which I, I, thinking about it now, I really appreciate at the time. I think I probably said like, you know, is there something you want to talk with me about? It's okay. Yeah. Um, looking back on it, I appreciate that you know, waiting another day to hear it because if, you know, it's, it's not the type of news that I planned for. I don't think it's the type of news that most people plan for. And it's hard to know how it'll affect you mm -hmm. and knowing what it was like in retrospect, hearing about it the following day, I was happy to have had like a little bit of that space before finding out. Yeah. 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 And then after that, you were, back in contact with her or you saw her or what, what happened next after that? I think I didn't see you that night. I think I offered to come over that night, but we got home pretty late. And then I'm pretty sure I saw you the next day. I can't imagine. I just, I don't remember specifically, but I can't imagine waiting longer than like seeing you the next day. And I think there were, you know, Andrea still had a number of tests that she was going through a number of appointments so i think some of the times we were seeing each other were like getting olive and charlie watching them while andrea and chris were going to appointments so things like that happened really quickly after because it was like january 26 27th right around there and you still had a lot on there was like a snowstorm or a flood or something. And so Amy and Kevin, her husband, are the emergency contacts for my kids. And so they, I think you picked up Charlie when we were stuck in Boston for my first day at Dana yeah, Farber. Right. I think that there was, that yeah, there was a snowstorm. It was January, so. Yeah. yeah. And was it, Amy, was it in telling your daughter, was that a big deal? Did your daughter understand what you were talking about, Aurora? Yeah. So, you know, we waited, Kevin and Kevin's my husband, we waited a little bit to tell her um, because also, you know, we're thinking about when Andrea and Chris were talking to Olive about it. And, you know, Aurora is a year and a half older than Olive, not wanting a situation where Aurora is talking about it with Olive and Olive hasn't heard yet from Andrea and Chris. So balancing right. that. Right, right, right. Um, and then, you know, once it was clear what the treatment would be like, what the path forward was, we had a discussion with Aurora about it in, you know, an age appropriate way. Um, and Aurora loves Andrea. She calls Andrea the queen mother in a game that she and all <laughs> Where Amy was and Amy's the swim instructor. I'm the queen mother and she's the princess with Olive and Amy's the swim instructor. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Aurora took it well. And I think, you know, understood as much as, you know, you understand at seven. And I, you know, have spent a lot of time with Andrea going to treatments um, and helping out in various ways. So Aurora has known that whole time, you know, where I was, what I was doing had times that Olive and Charlie were over because Andrea and Chris were at appointments. So she's been very aware of all of that. 
wonder if you could say about as you then sort of went through the waters of mm-hmm. early cancer treatment in were there any ways it changed your relationship to Andrea? You think noticeably or or was it just sort of you had your usual routines and your usual way to be together and you just absorbed this new frightening thing? So it's interesting. So other people have asked us that too, if we feel like our relationship is different because of this. And I usually answer yes and no. Um, Andrea and I were very close before cancer. So, you know, I don't resonate with, you know, cancer bringing us together or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, cancer has created lots of new opportunities in our friendship that I didn't hope for. Um, You know, I didn't expect in our friendship to be going to chemotherapy with Andrea uh, you know, sitting with my friend as she's in a lot of pain from the cold cap during chemotherapy treatments. Um, mm. I didn't expect to be on FaceTime in the bathroom while she was, you know, while it was hard to get a blood draw, things like that. So there have been lots of, you know, unexpected things like that. Um, and at the same time, having had a close relationship before cancer, I also feel like in a way, as unexpected as all of this is, in a way, it, it made sense and was natural for me to be here for those things. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Andy? What did did you notice things change? What What was your experience in the early days of your friendship? So, in many ways, it's just it's just me and Amy being me and Amy. Like that, in many ways, it's just this is us. And I think, and Amy and I had a conversation about this where I feel like it's given us the opportunity where I'm not surprised. Um, You know, I think Amy showed up for me and acted in ways that I would have expected. And I was able to be vulnerable in ways that made sense. But I got to actually see that. You know, there's there's a way in which I didn't want this to happen. And given that it is, I'm going to enjoy the good stuff that comes with it. Was was getting to enjoy that? Yes, this friendship is what I thought it, you know, what it was. Um, you know, I joke to a lot of people who know Amy, like my cancer brings out the best in Amy. And what what I mean by that is, um, I am a very, you know, energetic kind of more loud, a big emotions kind of person, and Amy is, you know cool as a cucumber and more even keeled and and not as expressive. And so I think it's a combination of us working together closely in our work, doing DBT together and and really being in the room as we do family therapy as co-therapists, bringing out that side in Amy and and then kind of seeing it shine where I've noticed since my cancer um, diagnosis, I feel like Amy has been more expressing of her own vulnerabilities with me and saying like, this is hard and this is what I need. And, and with people, our work and our friends, um, and just kind of letting more of herself out, like in that way that, that actually I think has, has felt closer, even though I think we're just as close as we were. So it's, it's both sides of it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, an important part for me and going through all of this has been a lot of support from others around me. And since Andrea and I work so closely together, you know, all of my colleagues who I'm close with here are colleagues who Andrea is close with too. And there's really been a supportive environment here of people 
both asking me how Andrea is doing and also checking in on me and saying, how are you doing with everything that's going on and being here at work each day in a place where that support is sort of built in has been really helpful and has helped me to be able, you know, these are, are people I already know and have close relationships too. So it's an environment that I can be expressive in about how all of this is really affecting me. Um, and that's been a really, a really helpful part of all of this. What about the, the question, and I was in this position myself that you're in, in a certain way years ago. What about the question of how available, how all the way in you are versus, you know, this concept of staying within your limits so that you don't burn yourself out uh, and do too much when you've all, you've got a, a very busy job and you have a daughter and a husband and your own life. So like where, have there been things that have been challenging where you've had to consider, well, I can do this, but I can't do that. Yeah, I think cancer puts a lot in perspective um, and those conversations about, you know, what my limits are and what I was available for. That was a conversation that Andrea and I had early on um, mm. with her asking, you know, what what works for you? What's a fit for you in all of this? Mm. So I wrote Andrea a card expressing basically like I, I'm all in for all of it, whatever that means. And at the same time, you know, having really limited information about what that meant. So I could choose based on the information at that time to be all in and be there and not know exactly what that meant. So, you know, Andrea and I are, have very direct conversations about these things, about, you know, each of our limits, boundaries, what we're available for. So I felt like as much as I was saying, I'm all in, I can do this, um, at any point in time that it felt like that changed, that there was also the opening to say, you know, this isn't something I expected. That didn't come up. I didn't feel like I reached a point where I was like, oh, hold on, like, this is not what I signed up or had that come up, we could have talked about it. Um, that need hasn't been there, but I know it still is there if something like that did happen. Was so, it challenging at all to go with her to her medical appointments or is that something that's totally within your strike zone um, as a person who trained as a doctor to begin with and, and to have your close friend be under treatment like that? I mean, what was that like for you? Yeah, that's it's interesting. So for a lot of medical things, I'm I'm good and I've got it, but not for everything. And mm. it's a very different experience to see your best friend going through it and to be in pain. Um, I don't have the vasovagal response. I didn't feel like I got to the point of, of fainting like Chris might in some of those <laughs> scenarios. But it's very different to watch someone having a painful IV placed versus watching your best friend have a painful IV placed. Right. You know, there's right. the the physical part of it that I can I can watch and I can see if they get the IV and if there's blood flow and all of that. But then there's the emotional side of supporting your friend who's in incredible pain. 
So it's more that aspect of it that is hard. Someone you love going through this for me, as opposed to the medical side of it. Mm -hmm. Um, One place where, you know, something for me that I'm not so great at seeing are things like surgical drains. So Andrea and I went to an appointment um, at Dana-Farber where there's the possibility. I think they knew they were going to take out at least one drain post-surgery, post-mastectomy. There's a possibility that they could take out others. And we had a conversation on the drive there about it with Andrea asking, you know, what are you okay seeing? Um, And I said, you know, the the drains are like, well, it sort of is a just like disgust response for me. It makes me sort of like gives me that icky feeling to look at things like that. And Andrea said, you know, I can give you some information about what it'll look like if that helps you thinking through what it'll be like. So I said, okay, give me information. So she started talking about the drains and the stitches and the stereo strips. And I was like, oh, no, no, that's beyond my limits. I, that is when I was like, I don't want to pass out driving the car. All right. You found- <laughs> I put a pause on that discussion and I, I can do that. And Andrea respects that limit for me. Um, the funny thing is we got there and I realized like it was all anticipatory anxiety because I looked at everything the minute <laughs> that the PA was doing the procedure and I was like, oh, that's actually not a big deal. That was my emotions taking over and making me anxious about something that, you know, in reality didn't create a high level of anxiety. Hmm. I had an interesting, when, when I was going through something like this all those years ago, um, I went to a lot of appointments similarly. And um, one of the things that did that, see, I, I internally was afraid that because I started to be afraid I would lose my friend. Uh, can I tolerate this? I mean, so it doesn't sound like you're bringing that up, but it, I think it, people are different, you know, so I'm wired differently. I have, I have high sensitivity to potential losses like that. And uh, based on some of your earlier experiences. So I was like, oh, no, oh, no, you know, and so there was a deep sense of, uh oh, uh oh. And I and and the fact that I was involved in a lot of appointments and meetings with her oncologist and things like that actually made it that I could maintain the connection with her because we mm-hmm. we kind of had a daily working relationship of she knew that I knew and I knew that she knew that I knew. And so we were in this. It felt like we were enough in this together that it helped me to temper some of my fear. Uh, that that might have made me be frightened and feel like pulling away or something to protect myself. Doesn't sound like that hits you. And I think it's just highlights, you know, how different people are, what you bring to the experience. But it's also a different experience because my, I think that my friend had right from the beginning a a, a more frightening prognosis uh, than Andrea has had, mm-hmm. and uh, and and ended up having some pretty extreme procedures and stuff like that. But it did, just being involved with her made us in a way closer, but also it, it brought me in touch with uh, fears mm-hmm. of, uh, of loss. Um, and she had a daughter uh, too, and it made, brought me closer to her daughter actually, because mm-hmm. her daughter would then ask me things that she didn't feel she could ask her mother anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and so, yeah, it just changed everything. Mm-hmm. And she also had a partner, and a, 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 a woman who was her partner, who I also knew, and it brought us closer together around this. Just everything, resh- it was a reshuffling 
of the whole social network uh, in all kinds of little ways. Um, it's kind of like, it's, in a way, it's smart uh, that everybody adjusts to the degree they can. That isn't true in every situation. You guys have been amazing and your families and the fact that you already had two families that were already intertwined and already made all these adjustments with each other um, was already kind of a wonderful opportunity. But you guys have an, you had seemed to have an unusually explicit capacity, the two of you, to talk things over. Andrea said at one point to me when she she and I were talking about your, your relationship that mm -hmm. at the beginning she was going through what she sort of goes through with her DBT clients about uh, setting up treatment, like what are the pre-treatments, what's the pre-treatment period, what kind of commitments are you expecting to make, and how are you going to get through that, and what are the agreements that we have, things like that that you do in, in DBT. So it's kind of like she had a whole repertoire of uh, being upfront with you about what she needed or what you were going to be able to commit to. Yeah, I think, you know, I had, you know, when when I found out that this was cancer, um, you know, my husband was in the waiting room um, and there were, after Chris, there were a few people that felt like essential, I need to tell kind of people. And Amy was right up there at the top of the list. I chose, ooh, this is Harry Potter. I do not want to fuck with Harry Potter. <laughs> so I'm not doing it till after the play. And then I thought there was that window and she had plans with her friends. And I checked in with myself. There was this balance of not want to take away from the special New York trip and also knowing Amy would want me to tell her right away and what my needs were. And I felt like I had enough with Chris and my sister, Heather, that, that I could wait a day. And then after that, you know, I think Charlie and I talked about this from my own experience. Like I knew I needed to jump in all the way with, with my treatment. And um, there was no, no going slow here because I, I really felt like this is something I wanted to practice acceptance with my actions. And I think Amy actually on, I think you had a similar approach, Amy, when it came to your experience of my cancer and our friendship. Yeah, I haven't heard you put it that way, but that really, I, that holds true for me too. It was like, this is happening. We are doing this. Like, I'm going to jump in and fully be available in whatever way that means. And we're handling it. Um, and as we went through all the treatments too, like I had a sense of building mastery around chemo and like yes. <laughs> a better and better sense of like, we've got this, like it was going to be hard and challenging, but you know, it's like put the four seltzers in the car, pack the suitcase, pack the things for the cold cap. Like, I felt like I got better and better at it every time. Um, and we went for treatment this morning and I've got like the songs ready on Spotify that we sing during Andrea's injection. <laughs> so I, you know, I built a lot of confidence in, in being a partner through all of these treatments and through cancer. Well, what I'm impressed by it, those people who know DBT and Andrea certainly and, and you would, um, that those, there are those, there are those skills for helping you increase your resilience or reduce your vulnerability and accumulating positive emotions, which you're talking about is one and coping ahead 
and having all everything set up, you know, and, and learning and building mastery as you go. And it just highlights that these three things, which are called the ABCs, yes. the accumulate positive, build mastery and cope ahead, they all work together, you know, in a way. And, and I wonder if you guys could say a little more about what have you done to try to keep alive or to make use of positive experiences together uh, as part of helping to cope with this, this threatening event and this potential suffering? We made chemo days really fun. <laughs> they were really good at the A skill. I think we've done, like, I give us a 10 out of 10 for our A skill through our answer. <laughs> yes. What, so you said you were preparing to sing songs during, what, what, what kind of songs were you choosing? So I chose for the first one. So it's a five minute injection that burns. It's painful. And so we did You Were Meant for Me by Jewel and Stay by Lisa Loeb. 90s okay. kind of classic songs. Are, and my infusion nurse sang, sang with us. <laughs> um, we always got these fancy coffees like we did today. Had really good TV shows lined up. Had, you know. Wow. We, we played games. So um, each each week um, when I got my vitals would be prices right style betting um, to see who could be closest without going over on what the numbers would be. Um, I think I think that you know we we did this actually during treatment and and in between, and so it it wasn't waiting till I felt better to do things. But we went on. I think we've gone on like two or three fam like joint family vacations yeah. in a cabin together since yeah. then. Yeah. Um, you know, dyeing our hair blue, lots of swimming, things like that. And um, you know, for me, there's something about it's not waiting to go back to how it used to be or, or wait, you know, I can't wait till I have life like after cancer, it's okay, this is happening. Um, and so finding a way to actually have fun with it. Mm. Um, we, we had a lot of, wow. I think, good, like dark cancer. I can't think of any right now. I don't know if you can, Amy, but like cancer jokes too. And um, when I got the results from my, my, um, pathology. It's cancer-free. I met with my, my medical oncologist and wanted to know about risk of recurrence. And what she said was, there's this risk within the first five years. There's this risk in the second five years. And then at 10 years, your cause of death won't be from cancer. I think that she didn't say the word cured. I need to ask her next time when I see her if that's the case, but I, that's how I understand it. That once I hit 10 years, I won't die from this cancer. And so my mind went pretty quickly when I heard that to Amy and I need to plan a party. And we have picked the date, January 31st, 2032. Yes. Oh, and wow. we're, we're going to make a, this is on Amy's to-do list, to make a joint checkpoint savings account where we're each going to deposit <laughs> money each month 22, for 10 years. $22 a month? I thought we landed on 22 because that's your favorite number. 22 a month. For ten years, wow! And we are going to have a big fucking party to celebrate. Sure and there's there's something about it that's that's ludicrous. Like that's so silly to do. There's a silliness to it, and it makes perfect sense. And I I love that this is in our conjunction in the Venn diagram of me and Amy to do things like that and to to have this joy. Amy said joy, the celebration aspect. Um, I love this. I love hearing this. I mean, the only place I've known 
this kind of thing is that I went when I went through medical school and I spent a lot of time in the pediatrics ward and I and see children coping with cancer or coping with various things and how the child life people in the hospital, the so-called child life people, and I sort of became a volunteer, go in and do these kind of things with kids that are there and that are frightened and that are suffering and they have to go for a procedure or things like that. And I'm sure being a pediatric psychiatrist is probably Amy's done a fair amount of that um, kind of thing, but it's very, it was, it's to meet adversity like that with silliness mm -hmm. and fun and songs. I mean, there was one boy who, who, who came down with Guillain-Barre syndrome and he couldn't move and he couldn't talk and no one knew how he felt. So they just, they sent me in and I was a medical, so I thought, holy cow, what am I supposed to do? And so I went in with the guitar and I sang songs to him and he just looked at me because he couldn't do much more. And one of the songs I sang, unfortunately, at the time, I thought it was terrible. I made this ghastly error about which I felt guilty for a long time because I sang the um, uh, Peter, Paul and Mary song, the uh, um, Magic Dragon or uh, um, what's it called? Puff the Magic Dragon. Puff the Magic Dragon. And there's one line in there that says a, 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 something about a boy's not living forever. And I was looking at him and say, saying that and think, oh my God, I've just destroyed this poor kid. And then months later, I heard from his parents, they sent a letter to the hospital and it got to me saying that when he came home and he was able to speak again, that at the dinner table, he was singing Puff the Magic Dragon. I thought, yeah, and he hadn't known it before. So I thought, wow, you just don't know. Because I was just thinking the two of you are like, if you can give up your current careers, you could be for hire. Now, when, <laughs> when other people go through terrible things in life, I mean, I would like to have you come over. You'd be a lot better than getting like an inflatable bounce house. <laughs> to, to play. I mean, no, to, to me, it's because it's a radical, it's a radical opposition. Like a dialectic to meet fear and adversity with the level of fun and singing and silliness and the coffees and everything you guys did. I just, you just sort of stocked the situation with potential joy. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that it wasn't all joy. But yeah. Right? And this is something too, like, this is a value of ours with the kids and the families that we treat too. You know, we treat kids and families who are going through incredibly, incredibly hard, painful things. And that pain is real and is horrible for kids and families. And we bring in joy as much as we can. So like one of our staff will dress up as an, he has multiple costumes. So when kids graduate from our program, and this is a they do exposure therapy. They are facing the things that are scary to them, just like Andrea has been doing through this whole treatment. Right. They're doing incredibly right, right, right. brave, hard work. We want to celebrate that. So, you know, one of our staff will dress up in an avocado or a penguin. Um, and lobster. Or lobster. Amy and, Amy and I buy these costumes on Amazon and split them. And we are like, of course, there, there's going to be a giant <laughs> avocado at graduation where people are crying and expressing and experiencing their emotions. Mm -hmm. So we're, oh. why wouldn't we do that with cancer treatment too? This is horrible and painful. And there are still so many opportunities for joy, um, even with all of the shit that happens. Yeah, yeah. 
in the in the adolescent and young adult cancer communities, there's a lot about celebrating cancerversaries and having cancerversaries. cakes. And yeah, so yeah. people often um, get cakes that say, good job not dying. I love the humor there. And so for my six-month cancerversary, I was like, Amy, I want you guys to come over and um, I want you to get me a cake. Would you do that? And she got me the most delicious, huge tiramisu cake. And her daughter, Aurora, had on her own, Amy didn't instruct her to do this. Aurora wrote me a card um, that had this validation and encouragement. She she wrote, Andrea, you know, cancer is hard. Uh, I'm, wow. I'm wow. proud of you for being brave. Thanks wow. For oh, how touching. That's so touching. From a seven-year-old, you know. From a seven-year-old. And by the way, when that seven-year-old graduates from something, I hope you're going to remember to dress as a queen bee and a swimming instructor. <laughs> you, know, like, just, you already have your, you should have your costumes all picked out by now. You know, it's like, wow. No, I, I had no idea this was going to be the turn of this conversation. But because I think this is unique, and I, I hope other people are hearing this who are coping with this, it's not always possible for people, I mean, given what they're going through to do this. So it's obviously, let's talk about comparisons. You don't want people to think, oh my mm -hmm. God, why can't I do that? Well, because maybe you're suffering from depression at the same time, or mm -hmm. or maybe because your circumstances are different, or maybe things aren't mm -hmm. going well, or you didn't get good news from the doctor. It's very hard to be silly and fun if it's all bad news. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I think still there's a place for this, really a place for this, for most people in one way or another. It's just hard to get yourself to do it. You guys are like models. Maybe it's Rhode Island. You know, maybe there's something. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's all the iced coffees that we drink. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned you mentioned that before. How how many iced coffees do you drink? So, in the month of July, this is now the. <laughs> oh, you have an answer to this question. Oh, there's a very, okay. a very real answer, Charlie. <laughs> okay. Yes. So in the month of July, Rhode Island has the iced coffee, Rhode Island Food Fights Passport, where I've been for the past five years since I've lived here, 25 bucks, you get these coupons for free small iced coffee uh -huh. at about 40 places in Rhode Island. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And our friend Megan won the first two years. So I have competitions. Who can get them the fastest? Amy came in in the third year. I don't think you did the first two. And... Um, Amy won as you were, you were a dark horse, Amy, you came in, no one was expecting you. You won last year. I should have won. Like, I'm actually shocked. I had never won. One year I, I was, was uh, like eight months pregnant or something. And so I, I was not really up, up my game. And so I was like, before I got cancer, I was like, this is the year I'm going to win. Our friend moved out of state. So it was just me and Amy. And then I get cancer. And so, um, Amy and I, and the, and I, had my mastectomy July 5th. And so this is, this is from July 1st through 31st. Mm. And I was really disappointed because I was like, I really want to play this. And I wasn't willing to accept the reality that I wasn't going to get, what was it this year, Amy? Like 38, 40, 40 coffees in the month. And we had a series of long conversations <laughs> where we identified, you know, okay, how do we make this something that is doable, but isn't making it impossible for me to win, but also isn't making it easy. And at one point, what did, what did Kevin say, Amy? Yeah, Kevin said that I should let Andrea win because she has cancer. 
And I said, Andrea would hate if I let her win. I was like, in fact, she has said, you can't let me win because I have cancer. And Kevin then said, well, let her win, but make it look like you were trying. <laughs> I think you came back with your values. You were like, well, that would go against my values. Yeah, she doesn't want that either. And I don't want that. That's funny. That's and so fine. we kind of worked on collaborative problem solving Are what do I want? What does Amy want? What are the barriers? What are the realities? And we'll spare you the details because this, this probably was a couple hours worth, it's a little, <laughs> but really negotiated. I mean, we brought Dear Man Give Fast skills, the interpersonal effectiveness skills to the table and came up with a synthesis, a middle path of ways to change the rules um, so that, so that we could, we could do this given the reality that, um, you know, I, I wasn't able to drive for a week and, and things like that. You know, what it's reminding me of, I forgot about this, but talking to you guys about this is that when when my friend Cindy, when I would visit her at her place and I would like bring food over and we would hang out. Sometimes my son, who was two at the time, would come with me and we would hang out. But she and I would do this silly thing of sitting out in the back on on her patio. And she lived kind of out on a country road, but you could look from her patio down at the next house that had a swimming pool. And there were like four men that lived in this house. And they were the type of men that everyone had like five earth moving vehicles, you know, like everybody's got either a race car or this or that. And they move for earth and they're out there and they're on ATVs, ATVs. And so they were like a bunch of children living in a house. And we would sit out there and make predictions about what they were going to get next. And one day, I remember Cindy said, you know what they don't have that they really should get is a Hummer. You know, like they need a Hummer. Mm -hmm. And and so what happened the next, literally the next day, they drove up with a Hummer. <laughs> so she called me and we went over. We had such a blast just sort of looking in on these crazy men that were like uh, living their lives like as, as if there's no tomorrow with all of these earth moving vehicles. So I just think that that... When I think back on it, it was a high point. I think, you know, it's hard to preserve having a good time and silliness and fun when you're facing a potential life-threatening situation. And it's so cool to hear how you guys have done it. Really. And we did it not, it was never like as a distraction or acting like everything's fine. Like it was, it was really the both and of the situation. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. Think it allowed us both to go there and, and, you know, I have either through texting or, or being together in person or on the phone or FaceTime, wherever, been able to, to really express how fucking terrified I feel or how mm. deeply sad this is. Mm. And I think, I think having both sides of it helps us go there, you know, fully on both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, uh, I also, we're, we just have a couple minutes left. And I just want to say that one of you, I think maybe Andrea sent me the, the letter that you wrote mm -hmm. to Andrea, I guess early on, or mm -hmm. that letter came pretty early. Yeah, right? this was, this was after I had shared my diagnosis. So the context for this letter is that, you know, Amy is my best friend, um, we also, we haven't used the phrase in this, in this discussion, but we talk about being work wives. That's a phrase people use too. We've, work we've been work engaged. We're right. work wives. I actually have for people on YouTube, I had this custom made Venn diagram 
Oh, look at that. I have mine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so, so cool. So it says a a Amy and Ange on the other side and work wives in the conjunction. You know, we have that. That's um, nice. And this relationship where we're, we're not blood family, but she's family to me. And how when adversity comes, when illness comes, you know, what can you ask a friend versus what can you ask a family member and what's expected? And I knew, and you alluded to this earlier, Charlie, like, I, I really um, felt like it was important to not make assumptions because um, that could get us stuck and to, to be really direct um, and, and active in expressing to Amy what, what my needs were, what my wants were, and to really like say, here's what I want to be able to ask you to do. And you can say yes or no. And I want to kind of know where you are. And I don't want to make assumptions that just because you're my best friend, you'll do it. Or since you're not family, you won't. Because assumptions can go both ways. So I could imagine a case where we didn't talk about what Amy was in for, me not asking, right? To be fearful of asking. You know, in, in some ways, it's it's crazy that Amy's taking, you know, taking the day to come with me to treatment every three weeks for a year. Who does that? What friend does that? Yeah, yeah. If I didn't ask her to do that, she, she couldn't do it. And the answer was yes. So in a way, by putting it out there and saying, you know, this this is confusing territory with close friends, but I want to name this. I want to see where you are. Gave me freedom to ask. And one thing I, I loved that I learned from Seth Axelrod, who was my first DBT teacher, was interpersonal effectiveness. When you're being interpersonally effective, asking means that you're willing to accept no for an answer, that you'll, you may have a strong ask, but it's really up to the, the other person to say yes or no. And so I think that was something I used in this conversation where... I think I think I had tears. I, you know, you we were talking. There was emotion and saying like, I, I need to know what what you're in for. I don't want to assume and then ask or not ask. Right. Please don't answer now. And I I remember Amy saying, I think I know my answer. And yes, let me let me think about it and get back to you. You know, to 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 close, I just want to say you guys are. I'm thinking of how many people I've interviewed on the podcast that have been through hell of different kinds and how they've coped with it. And I've, I've gotten so much out of it. And, and one of the things that there was that one person, I've had a podcast of a woman who lost her two-year-old son, mm. Natalia. And people said after that, that she was like an emotional badass. And she actually said when she heard that, that she was going to put that up on her door, you know, that she's a, a, a Natalia Garcia emotional badass. And, <laughs> and then Seth Ox Axelrod was sort of an emotional badass, too, even with his temperament being a little more even. And then uh, this Beth I recently interviewed about losing her son. Uh, she's an emotional bad, And you guys like as a couple, are an emotional badass. I just want to say, welcome to the badass community. And you, you're entitled to put it on your doors at the same time and be in touch with the other badasses. But I, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I really didn't know where we were going to go with this, but this whole twist about how to bring positivity in alongside suffering and still allow yourself to cry when you need to cry and to feel pain when you feel pain but to not have to deny those things, which in the long run doesn't help that much, but uh, but also to be able to reach out and do such fun things. So thanks for sharing that. And I, and yeah, I think it's the really embracing the vulnerability and, and sharing that with each other. 
not letting the fear of the negative be unspoken has allowed us to get to deeper positives with each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for coming on, Amy, and for, you know, for both of you for coming on and bringing your relationship out, 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 coming out <laughs> as uh, work wives, <laughs> cancer wives and work wives. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Charlie. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye.